Father, first, I'd like to come before you and we'd pray for your mercy on this coronavirus that is going around the world. Uh, we pray that uh, those who are sickened, over a couple thousand people, Lord, we ask that you would heal them up. And we know that all the reports that are coming out, the numbers are probably being fudged. Uh, and Lord, it could be really bad, but we would ask for your mercy that you would intervene just as the Israelites did in the plague in the desert. They looked to the snake on a pole, that which was accursed. May they look to you and ask for your help and guidance. And Father, also this morning we had prayed for the same thing when it comes to your word, that we'd be able to understand, comprehend, apprehend everything that is in there that will lead to life and godliness and also to our witness to others. We thank you that you have not left us as orphans but given us direction. So teach us this morning, Lord, by your spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. We left off in Matthew chapter 27, and we saw that Jesus was sentenced to die. He went to Annas first, who was a father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was deposed by the Roman government, and Caiaphas was installed. And then before the chief priests and the elders with Caiaphas and to Pilate and to Herod and back to Pilate. And of course, Pilate gave him up to the Praetorian Guard uh, to be crucified. Then after that, Judas was seized with remorse and Jesus was silent before Pilate. In verse 14 says, but Jesus made no reply, not even a single, two, not even a single charge to the great amazement of the governor. And that was a fulfillment of prophecy, Isaiah chapter 53, in verse 7 and 8. And then there was the selection of Barnabas, and I went through that. Uh, the proper pronunciation of his name would probably be Bar-Abbas, just like Simon Bar-Jonah, which means he is son of the father. Abba, we know his daddy, Abbas, is father. And so... I told you in the ancient Syriac text, and there's one of two texts, in the Syriac text that says Yeshua bar Abbas, which means Jesus, son of the father. That's who was released. That was the criminal. And he was an insurrectionist and a murderer. He was against the Roman state. And, of course, he was going to be sentenced to death. But I explained to you, This was a setup by God himself. Then in the Old Testament, we had the scapegoat in Leviticus chapter 16, verses 1 through 10, where the high priest was to place his hands upon the scapegoat, and the atonement would take place with that, and the sins would be carried away to the east. And of course, we know that in Scripture, in Psalm 103, verse 11, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. So when the scapegoat goes to the desert, he goes east. Jerusalem is in the west. And Jesus did both things. He was the sin offering, the one goat that was for the sin offering. And he was also the atonement, the one who take away or takes away our sin. So the guilt goes with the goat that goes to the wilderness. So the effects of our sin are taken away. First, the ransom is paid. God requires that a price be paid, which is giving a life for sin. So Jesus became the sin offering, and he also took away or atoned for our sin and took away the guilt. Now, in verse 27, where we left off, here we see Jesus is struck, spit on, and stripped, and given a crown of thorns. Now, the crown of thorns... I don't know if you can see it, but it's in the top box over there. If you just want to see how sharp that is, just go ahead and put your finger on one of those tips, and that's what they would have put on his head. That's similar to a a plant that is in the Middle East and in Israel there, and these branches come out, and these thorns are two inches long, and they're just like a needle, and they will go right into any skin. They will penetrate very easily, and that's what they put on his head. It says in verse 27, then the governor, governor's soldiers took Jesus to the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. Now, these praetorian guards, they were a terrible lot. 
they would give their allegiance to whoever had the most money. They would set up a Caesar and put down a Caesar. And if you were a Caesar, your life was always in danger unless you had enough money. They killed the eldest son of Tiberius, Caesar, and they were trying to install somebody else. And finally, they were disbanded because they were such a, a rogue group that was out there just trying to control everything. And they were just absolutely brutal. Now, going on, they stripped him and put a scarlet or purple robe on him, then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. And they put a staff, or it's actually a reed, in his right hand. You guys know what a cattail is, that type of thing. That's what they put on his hand. And knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, king of the Jews, they said. They spit on him and took the staff and struck him on the head again and again. After they had mocked him, they took off the robe and put his clothes on him. Then they led him away to crucify him. Now, on the way to be crucified, verse 32 tells us about Simon. As they were going out, and they met a man from Cyrene named Simon, and they forced him to carry the cross. Now, the Cyrenian, it's probably modern-day Libya is where he came from. And Simon, the Cyrene, he is mentioned in Scripture, and his sons are mentioned, Alexander and Rufus in Acts chapter 19 and Romans chapter 16. And so obviously Simon the Cyrene became a believer after that, and his sons were raised up in the faith. He carried the cross for Christ, and I'm sure he was not revered but showed respect in the early church because who would get the privilege of carrying the cross for Jesus? And, and as he was going to the cross, to Golgotha, a lot of people believe it is the full cross that he was carrying, just like we understand like this cross to be right here in front of the lectern. But he was probably just carrying what is known as the patibulum. The patibulum is the part that goes across, and then they would nail him to that and hoist him up onto the cross, and all of that would be the symbol, the modern-day symbol that we know of as the cross. And then they would nail his feet into that as well. In Luke chapter 23, verse 28, uh, we see that there were women around there uh, on his procession to be crucified. And he makes mention of them. Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. For the time will come when you will say, blessed are the barren women, the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. They will say to the mountains, fall on us and to the hills, cover us. For if men do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? And so he's encouraging the women, yes, this is bad, but it's going to get a lot worse. And of course, he's referring to the tribulation period here where people are requesting rocks to fall on them because of the fear of the Lord and the plagues that come upon the earth and the wars and the battles and the demons, everything that is there. It's going to be a difficult time for anyone who is alive. And of course, most of the world will die during that time. And in verse 31, still of Luke chapter 23 he says, for if men do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? What he's referring to is his presence. God is there physically present. And if they're willing to do that when God is present, what are they going to be willing to do when God is not physically present? And, and so it's going to be just a horrible existence for those who are here. Now, it goes on to tell us of the dividing of the king's clothes. They came to the place called excuse me, Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. There they offered Jesus wine to drink mixed with gall, and after tasting it, he refused to drink it. Now, just a couple of things here. Golgotha, uh, the word in the Greek is calvarium, where we get calvary, and I think most of you know this already, and that's what we are. We are skull chapel. Calvary chapel is skull chapel. And so if you wear black leather jackets and you drive a Harley, it's a good place for you to be, any Calvary Chapel. Uh, <clears throat> then he was also given gall. It, it is a, a drug that is, they usually put it as a sop. They put it on a rag and they hoist it up to the individual who is on a cross. And it's meant to numb the effects of what is taking place in the crucifixion. And of course, he took one taste of it and he refused it. But I, I don't know... Whoever has been to a acupuncture guy, now I've, I've been a few times and it's done wonders for me. It doesn't do that for everybody, but it's worked for me. 
And as he takes those needles, and they're, you know, they're fairly long, and they put them in, first they tap, they tap it, and then they kind of start digging, and they, they want the nerve. They're going in for the nerve. And when he hits the nerve that is swollen, usually you feel it. It's not like it's going to send you off of the table that he's using it. But the nerve usually reacts, and sometimes they'll put a little electrical charge on that needle, and it kind of pulses back and forth, and, and it has an effect on the nerves in the body. Exactly how that happens, I'm not sure. But it, it is quite effective, at least for me it has been quite effective. But he has always told me when I go and see him, he says, now, when it goes in, you should feel like this numb or just like a stun to the uh, nerve. You shouldn't feel hot, is what he says. And so every single time he's put it in, I felt the nerve. It was like a, a numb type situation. The nerve sometimes jumps and it comes, whoa, whoa, whoa okay, I'm all right. And, and then when he got one time, he got this nerve just the wrong way and it got instantly hot and burning. And I go, yeah, that one's burning. And he goes, okay. He took it right out as soon as that happened. And, you know, I was going, well, why, why would that happen? You know, when Jesus was crucified, I'll give you a little background here. I'm going to try to go ahead just a little bit. When Jesus was crucified, they went through this part of the hand. This is considered the hand. This is not considered the wrist. And I forget how many bones are in this area. But you guys know what carpal tunnel is. That's where the nerves, the nerve goes right through the center of the wrist. They would have taken that nail and nailed it right through that nerve. And so they've done some studies on this. And the studies state that if you pierce a nerve like that, you get a stinging burning. And it is almost, if a wind blows against your skin right there, it causes pain. Or if cloth just goes across it, it causes searing pain. And so Jesus, while he's on the cross, he lost the use of his hands. His hands would have been curled a little bit and he wouldn't have been able to open them. The nerves would have been crushed on the inside there. Same thing with the feet where he would have had the nails driven through his feet. And it was common to see one nail, but in the case of Jesus, it was probably two nails that they used. And each one was meant to go, just like the wrist, through the nerve around the ankles. And so whenever the wind would blow or some shaking would go on of any kind, or if you tried to pull up to breathe, there would be searing pain in both hands or in both feet or in all four if you tried to use all four. Just excruciating pain. And it was designed like this so that the suffering would be maximized. It, it's not quite enough to maybe send you unconscious. Of course, you could go in and out of consciousness. But it is just so bad that the suffering, like I said, is maximized. And Jesus would have been experiencing that. Now, when somebody is crucified, and they did this to thousands and thousands of people, to be an example, especially insurrectionist. <clears throat> and the two thieves that were on the cross, it is said that they could have also, according to the original language, they could have been insurrectionists. So anybody that stood up against Rome was crucified. And all of them would have been in the same state, in pain. And as Jesus was hanging on the cross, what would happen is the shoulders would begin to dislocate because the entire body is being hung on those two joints in the shoulders. And also what would take place is the lungs would be compressed. And in order to breathe, you have to either pull up or you have to push up with your legs. And if your legs are bent to the side, imagine trying to pull up, especially if your shoulders are out of joint. And scripture says that, and you go through Psalm 22 and also Isaiah chapter 53, it, it speaks of the condition of Jesus' body and how his bones are out of joint and it's just suffering to the max. And so he's pulling up, trying to breathe. And of course, he met his demise much earlier than the two thieves because he had been flogged, he had been scourged, he had been hit in the face. 
he was abused to the max. If you guys have ever seen The Passion of the Christ by Mel Gibson, that was probably pretty close to how brutal the crucifixion was that he endured. And his flesh would have been torn open. Uh, I'm sure you guys have heard what a cat of nine tails is. It's a wooden uh, handle, and it has attached to that uh, at least nine straps, could be more leather straps. It would be thin, maybe a quarter inch in diameter, maybe a half inch. And they would go out and be extended in maybe one or several pieces of bone that had been sharpened. And so when they would flog Jesus, it would literally rip open the skin because they would, and it would have hooks on it too. And so when you hit the back of somebody or any part of the body and they would pull it, and as they pulled it, it would just sever. It would sever the skin. It could sever the muscles that were underneath. And so all of that led to Jesus being quite fatigued and also led to him giving up the ghost a little bit earlier than the thieves who were on the cross. And, of course, we know he did that willingly. Verse 33, they came to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull, and they offered Jesus wine to drink mixed with gall, But after tasting it, he refused it. Verse 35, when they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots. And sitting down, they kept watch over him there. Above his head, they placed the written charge against him. This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. And it was in Hebrew, Latin, and Greek. Now, you can see the charge wasn't that he claimed to be God because Roman... uh, prudence, uh, the judicial system that they had, they would not crucify for somebody who claimed to be God, but they would crucify somebody for insurrection. And he claimed to be king of the Jews, or it says, Jesus Christ, king of the Jews. Well, he claimed to be a king which would have set himself up against Caesar, and that would have been the verdict on him, crucifixion. And this took place on Mount Moriah. Now, if you've ever been to Israel or seen pictures of that, the Golgotha is just to the north and the east of the old city of Jerusalem. Anybody who goes there, that's, of course, one of the places that you go. And there is a quarry that used to be there. Right now there's a bus station, and they'll take you to this one part on the wall, and you can look at the bus station, and there seems to be two hewn-out holes that would represent eyes, and then you go down about where the mouth is, and there's asphalt paving there. We don't know if that's the way it was back in the time of Christ, but it is a little knoll. It's a a place that if you exited towards the north in the Damascus Gate, you would have seen Jesus and the thieves on the cross because they were set as an example there. But that is also known as Mount Moriah, and that is the threshing floor that David purchased when he was disobedient to the Lord. And he made sacrifice on there. And Aruna wanted to give him not only the field, but the sacrifice. And David says, I will not offer to the Lord something that costs me nothing. And so that's where he sacrificed. It's also the same hill that Abraham took Isaac to sacrifice his only son. And of course, the Lord set that up. That's the way it was supposed to be, to foreshadow what was to be the Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world. And this is the place where Abraham, he took Isaac, and it's the first time in the Bible that the word love is used. He said, take your son whom you love and sacrifice him. And God did that. God gave his son whom he loved to be sacrificed for us. Verse 38, two robbers were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself, come down from the cross if you are the son of God. And of course we know this is the reason that he came. That was his purpose, was to suffer and die. And that's supposed to be our purpose as well. Now not necessarily physically, Although right now, uh, I talked to my pastor at the last men's breakfast. He was here. He's going over to China. Yeah, China, where the coronavirus is. And they're going to smuggle in Bibles over there. And that used to be a part when I was at Calvary Chapel, San Diego, with Mike McIntosh. He 
kind of got together with Brother Andrew, and they were smuggling Bibles in there. And then there became a, a time of openness over there where they are allowed to have the Christians. They weren't persecuted anymore. They built churches. Well, they recently just tore down the biggest church in China. They imprisoned the pastor, and they are persecuting the Christians. Not only the Christians over there, but also the Muslims. And I don't know if you know this, but they are harvesting organs from, I know specifically, the Muslim uh, believers over there, they're just taking out the organs and they're selling them. And so even in the United States, of course, around the world, in different countries, if you need an organ, you can go to China, you can get the organ and they'll take it from somebody in prison. And of course, that individual dies. Uh, China is a ruthless, despotic dictatorship over there. But they're trying to be portrayed as this up and coming capitalist society that is progressive in every way. But if you just watch what's going on in Hong Kong, the persecution that's going over there of just the political dissenters, not just the Christians, but they are persecuting the Christians. And that is exactly what happened to Jesus, the ultimate Christ, the ultimate Christian who was on the cross. They were persecuting him as well. And of course, we do know that they parted his garments, and that's uh, prophecy fulfilled in Psalm chapter 22, verse 8. Verse 41 of Matthew 27 goes on to say, In the same way the chief priests and the teachers of the law and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe him. Do you think they would have? No, they would. They were stubborn, just like their ancestors in the wilderness who saw the miracles. They saw the miracles that he did too, and there's no way that they were going to believe. It was just in their heart not to believe. Verse 43 says, He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the Son of God. In the same way, the robbers who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. But we do know that one of the robbers repented. And Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. And if he's with him in paradise, that's where God dwells. Paradise is the dwelling place of God. And so he went to heaven. He didn't have to do anything else but simply believe. He didn't get baptized. He didn't do any of the works. And some people would say, well, that's the old dispensation. It wasn't until the church was created that people got saved really by faith in the old testament they had to do all the works and that's what the jews believed but that wasn't the case according to scripture but this individual he, i mean just right there a few more minutes of suffering and you're in heaven and we have a tendency to fear death we we don't like to think about it we don't like to talk about it when my kids show up, they come over. You know, we talk about all kinds of stuff, and the conversation is good, and I'll say something like, well, when I'm gone, you know, this is what I want, or this is what you should do, and they, they look at me and go, stop talking about that. And I, I said, what? I'm the, hey, when I'm gone, throw a party, all right? Just have a great time, but don't worry that it's such a foreboding subject to talk about that it's morbid and, and you need to avoid that. I'm looking forward to the day of my death. Now that sounds like, ew, you know, looking forward to the day. Yeah, because I get a new body. I get to live forever. I try to imagine what heaven is going to be like and the entrance. You know, they, they make movies in Hollywood going, through the, going towards the light and through a tunnel and seeing all these people that have died before you. That may or may not be true. It could just be like, boom. You're in the throne room right there. Whoa, that was a shocking ride. You know, instantly from earth to up there. But it's going to be a fantastic journey, even though there may be some suffering here. But our suffering is light and momentary. And the, the inroads that we have made in medicine makes it as easy as it can possibly be for most people in the United States not elsewhere. But, you know, we, we give them drugs, we give them morphine, and they're kind of not in their right mind, and their body just succumbs. You know, I just heard it recently, somebody passed away, and they said they passed peacefully in their sleep. I don't know what peacefully means, but I, I know that there's the throes of death, that type of thing. And so it, it doesn't matter to us. 
It's not something that we have to fear. And that's why the disciples could go through the persecution and be martyred for their faith. They no longer feared death. It's like, what can anybody do to me that is here? Whether Satan or somebody else, they can do nothing. For to me, to die is Christ, which is gain. And so we don't have to fear that which is going to come, and it's going to come for all of us unless the rapture takes place. But these two thieves on either side, one was condemned and one was saved. Now, again, back in Luke chapter 23 and also in John and Matthew, there were seven statements that Jesus made while on the cross. And if you're going to say something on your deathbed, so to speak, what would you say? I mentioned this a week or two ago. You might express regret or I, I didn't love you enough or you may ask for forgiveness, those types of things. But Jesus was not self-focused at all. The first thing that he said, Luke chapter 23, verse 34 says, Father, forgive them. Now, it, it doesn't mean that they were going to be forgiven of the actual sin and be let into heaven. It's more a fulfillment of a prophecy by Jesus in Matthew chapter 5, verse 44. It talks about the enemies. It says, Love your enemies, bless those who curse you, and do good for those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. He was praying for them. But we know without Jesus Christ and the acceptance of him, nobody goes to heaven. And so that's not the case. Maybe it'd be the case that this specific act is not held against them in judgment. We don't know. But certainly nobody gets to heaven without accepting Christ. So Father, forgive them. Also today... Shalt thou be with me in paradise, King James, Luke chapter 23, verse 43. And of course, that was the other thief on the cross, the insurrectionist. And which means there is no sin that can't be forgiven. This was the worst of sins for Rome. In the eyes of anybody who would have been around at that time, that was it. You would be crucified for that. Now, for the Jews, they wouldn't crucify anybody. They would stone them. That's usually the modus operandi for carrying out a capital crime, or punishment for a capital crime. But this individual went to be with Jesus in paradise. The third thing was, woman, behold thy son. So, so far, Father, forgive them. Who? Those who are crucifying. Today you'll be with me in paradise. Who? The thief on the cross. He's bringing comfort to them, or to the, to the one thief on the cross, and to his mother, Mary. Woman, behold thy son. And also to John, behold your mother. And so what he was doing was passing off the responsibility of Mary to John. Now, where were the brothers? Isn't it the job of the family to support the mother? Well, for some reason, apparently this was not taking place. And I think that uh, they didn't believe in who Jesus was until after the resurrection. We know that James was the head of the church in Jerusalem. And he became a believer after that. Probably his whole family got saved after that, but at that particular time, it, it appears Mary was without support of some kind. So while dying, he made provision for his own mother. And this, after this were three hours of darkness where Jesus is silent. And I'm sure that darkness was thick. Now, have you ever been in a place where it's been so dark, you can literally see nothing at all. You, you kind of see little stars that are coming from your own eyes that you're going, where's, where's the light? I'm trying to get some receptors working here, but there's no light whatsoever. And if you go into some caves, uh, you can easily get that experience. And it's kind of a little eerie to do that, but it was dark over the land, just like in the nation of Egypt. Remember when the plagues came, plague of darkness, it talked about being thick you, know, you can't even see a thing. Even if you lit a candle, it's like the, the photons would not go very far and you couldn't see much. And so I'm sure that's the type of darkness that was there. Then the fourth thing he said was, why hast thou forsaken me or why have you forsaken me? Matthew chapter 27 verse 46. Of course, this is a quote from Psalm chapter 22 verse 1. And he said that to bring attention to the Old Testament scriptures, which he always did. And this is going to bring glory to the Father. He's quoting the scriptures as being fulfilled then. And so all glory 
goes to the Father. It doesn't go to him. So, so far, it's nothing about himself, except you get to number five. He says, I thirst. And he was thirsty. In other words, he was confirming that he was suffering. But he didn't say, help me. He didn't say any of that, because this is why he came. And then the sixth one was, it was finished. And of course, this is the reason he came to earth, was to die. When we become Christians, the reason that we are disciples of Jesus is to die to ourselves, to everything we want. And just a word about that. I have a hard time doing that. I don't know about you guys, but whether it's at home or it's on the road, I I don't like somebody doing something that I don't like. You know, I don't like it when they do that. A prime example of this, and I've noticed this about me because I, I make this commute from Lakeside to Alpine several times a week because I'm, I'm doing a job up there. And there's a lot of traffic. And the traffic, not like downtown San Diego, but there's just enough where you'll find people just weaving in and out of traffic. I'm, I'm just going to give you a personal note here that one of the things that I really hate that just sends my anger level up instantly is when there's hardly any space between you and the car in front of you and somebody decides they're going to pull right in. I, I tell you, I have to stop, get off of their tail, just back away. But I, I'm fighting on the inside. I want to get right on there, flip on my brights and make sure they know that my light is in their mirror right there so they can see. You know, I, I, on the inside, I'm just going through this and I'm going, stop it. You know, and on the other side, I'm going, no, they deserve this. And, and I think to myself, maybe I can just tap them a little bit and they'll get the, uh, and I'm so self-centered in that. So pray for me, you know, when I'm on the road like that. Or when somebody, you know, coming down the hill, do you guys know what the speed limit is coming down Highway 8 there? 70 miles an hour. And then you get somebody in the fast lane who's doing 55 or 60. And they won't move over. They just go around. And I'm, get off. I want to bump them too, you know. And, it, and it's terrible on the inside. And I, after I get all done, I go, calm down. Just knock it off. You know who you are in Christ. You need to just quit. This person's probably going to hell, you know, and they need to be saved. <laughs> and, and so all of that is running through my mind. And I have to fight that. And I I just hate that. I hate that on the inside. And so we are all selfish in our pursuits. And, you know, you try not to be selfish. And so God makes us aware of our selfishness so that we can, like, skim it off as dross off of the metal or the gold that is produced. And it's a battle. And it lasts our whole life long. And hopefully towards the end of our lives, it gets a little better. And we can be a little more like Christ. And of course, at the end of it, he's said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And so Jesus fulfilled what his purpose was on earth. That's in Luke chapter 23, verse 46. And this was a display of trust in the face of hardship and death. He never asked once that... God, what's going on here? He knew what was going on. And then there's the idea of, why have you forsaken me? And some people, I believe, have falsely taught that God the Father could not look at Jesus on the cross because he took our sin. It even says that in Scripture in one way, that God cannot look upon sin. It says in Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 13, Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrong. It's it's not that God the Father couldn't look at him. It's that at that time, God the Father took away his protection from Jesus and allowed Jesus to be crucified. And of course, Jesus knew what was going on, but he saw that that protection was not there because he needed to be the sacrifice. It wasn't that God the Father didn't know what Jesus was going through, that he turned his head away from Jesus, because he doesn't tolerate sin at all, he, which means 
He always has to judge it because of his righteousness. He, he must follow through with his very nature. Our nature is to sin. God's nature is to love. Our nature is to go astray. God's nature is to judge. And he does those things perfectly. And he does not error in doing them. But we are not perfect. And so that's the character of God. The Father, it's not that he didn't look at Jesus on the cross. He knew exactly what was going on. But his divine providence, his care over Jesus, the protection that was there was taken away. And he was to be crucified. We know that in his ministry, Jesus was protected. Remember, they wanted to throw him over the cliff in Nazareth? And what did he do? He walked through the midst of the crowd. How do you do that exactly? I don't know. I have no idea if there's a crowd of 100 or 200 people that want to throw you over the cliff. How do you walk through the midst of them? They're going to grab you and they're going to throw you over the cliff. I don't know if he dematerialized like Scotty beam me up type of thing. I, I have no idea. Or if it, the people parted like the Red Sea and he went just right through the middle of them and nobody could touch him even though they may be grasping for I have no idea how it happened. But God's protection was with him. And he was prevented from being taken earlier than this particular time for it was that time that was set in stone before the foundations of the earth that he would be crucified. Then we go into the suffocation and I'll read a, a little bit more that I already described to you on this. From the sixth hour until the ninth hour, darkness came over all the land. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lamna sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, he's calling Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and got a sponge, filled it with wine vinegar, put it on a stick and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, now leave him alone and let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. Now, why are they saying, he's calling for Elijah? It's because in the Old Testament, it was expected that Elijah would show up. In Malachi chapter 4, verse 5, it says, See, I will send you the prophet Elijah before the great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. Also says in Malachi 3, 1, See, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple, the messenger of the covenant, whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. And you can also go to Isaiah chapter 40 and read about that. And so that's why they thought Elijah has to come. You know, if you have the Messiah, you have Elijah. And of course, we know John the Baptist, if we can accept it, came in the spirit and power of Elijah. But I believe in the end times before Jesus comes back, real Elijah is going to show up. That's what this refers to in Malachi chapter 4, verse 5. But this burning of the nerve that I referred to previously, there's this guy, Dr. Frederick Zagagi, or Z I think that's how you pronounce his name. He is a medical examiner, and he wrote a book about this. And he says that being crucified, he described it as an unrelenting, peculiar burning or searing sensation that is so intense that even gentle contacts like clothing or air drafts cause utter torture. Although Jesus' feet might have been fastened to the cross by one nail, two nails were more likely. The nails would have pressed against the plantar nerves, causing incessant burning, searing pain. After a short period of time on the cross, the severe cramps, numbness, and coldness of the calves and thighs caused by the compression due to the knees being bent would force Jesus to arch his body in an attempt to straighten his legs. This would continue periodically throughout the entire period that Jesus was on the cross. Tremendous suffering, and it was designed to be like that. Verse 51. This is the miraculous events that took place. Now, this would have been something to see. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, rocks split... The tombs broke open and bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs and after Jesus' resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many people. Well, first, it's dark. It's dark for three hours. Then the temple, the curtain is torn. Now, it is said that the curtain in the temple that separated the Holy of Holies from the most holy place, or excuse me, from the, the 
inner chamber where the showbread was and the candlestick and the altar of incense, all of that was in the, uh, the primary chamber. And then you go to the Holy of Holies. As you walk up there, that curtain would have been very tall. Some people say 30, 60 feet tall up in there. I, I, I think probably 30 was correct. I haven't looked at the actual height inside the temple. But they would not get rid of the old curtains when they would wear out. They would sew a new one on top of it. And so, have you ever tried to rip clothing? One piece of clothing? One piece is not too tough. Go home, grab some towels. About ten of them. Yeah, just try to tear them. Growing up, I remember there was this program. Are you ready? To tell the truth. Uh, you guys remember that, huh? To tell the truth. Kitty Carlisle was on there, you know, and, and I forget the other two that were on there. But you had to guess what this one person did. And one of the guys was the strong man on the original Mission Impossible. And I forget who his name was. I can still see it in my mind. They said that, oh, he probably can't tear a phone. You guys know what a phone book is? Couldn't tear a... What was his name? Yeah, he, he was huge. Just a massive guy. And they said, oh, he probably can't tear a phone book in half. And I remember this one program. He gets up and he takes this phone book and he just rips it right in half. Go, oh, oh, oh. my dad kind of laughed at that time. And he goes, go ahead, get a phone book, try it. You know, and then he, he threw to us this other thing called the TV guide. You guys know what that was? He goes, try to tear the TV guide in half. And, you know, we're just struggling. Of course, we were teenagers at that time. But imagine for decades, a curtain which is wearing out, you sew another on top, on top, on top. How thick does that thing have to be? And the estimates were inches. It was inches thick. And how much would that weigh? Well, it was torn not from bottom to top, but from top to bottom. I believe that's significant because who's at the top? God is at the top. And he's the one that's saying, this thing is ripped open now. Access to the Holy of Holies is for everybody. If you guys remember, it was only once a year that the high priest could go in there and he could never enter without blood. If he entered without blood, he would be killed because he had to uh, have a sacrifice on the Day of Atonement. Well, this thing rips in two. And then the rocks broke. Now, the word that is used for rock here is Petra, not Petros. Petros is a piece of a rock. Petra, if you guys ever look at pictures of Petra, it's one rock that they hewn out all of these buildings. One rock. It goes down either side of this valley that's there. And so rocks were splitting in the area of Jerusalem. And these would have been rocks that were probably 30 feet high. If you were to go underneath the water out here in Point Loma, right off uh, from the sewage treatment plant that's out there, I've been out there in 70, 80 feet of water. (laughs) And it kind of clears up out there. And as you're at the bottom of 80 feet, you see these massive rocks come up, and they are massive. They are half the size of this room, and they go up probably 30 feet, and you know, you're know you scuba diving around those things, and you go, what the size of this rock that is down here? Massive rocks like that would break apart. Now, that would be an event if you saw something like, something like that on the ground in the city of Jerusalem just splitting apart. Well, then what else happened? Well, we have the curtain that is torn. We have the rock split. We have the earthquake that took place, probably so severe that they had problems standing up. Then the tombs broke open. Now, if you go to Israel today and you're standing on the Mount of Olives and you look over to the Gate Beautiful and the Dome of the Rock, which is over there, you'll see all these graves. They're all above ground because they want to be closer to God when he comes back, the resurrection, that type of thing. But on the other side is the Muslim cemetery. You have the Jewish cemetery here. You have the Muslim cemetery over there next to the wall because the priest is not supposed to defile himself with a body, that type of thing. Well, some of these tombs, and they could have been a rock tomb of some type, broke open. And the people dusted themselves off and got up and walked into town. (laughs) I tried to imagine this. You're at home. And you go to the door and you go, 
you cough, you see who it is, and you go, Harry? They go, yeah, Sally? Harry and Sally, Harry met Sally, you know, that takes place. You're just, you're probably going to faint if it's somebody's wife, uh, and maybe she remarried. Oh, yeah, you could see the complications that would take place, but these were holy people. Now, we don't know how long they were decaying. Usually, if, if it was a, a tomb like a sepulcher, what they would do is they would let the body rot in there for several years, and they'd take the bones, and they'd put the bones in an ossuary. Well, it hadn't been that long. So say it was five years or so. You know, they make TV movies about this stuff. I actually saw one where this bus full of kids, high schoolers, goes over an embankment, and all the kids die in this town. And, and the beginning of the show shows this girl coming back over a guardrail. She's kind of disoriented. She walks home. She gets into the shower. She's showering herself. Mom comes home while she's showering. And she opens up. It's like, who is showering? So she opens up the door and sees the dead daughter who's been dead for five years. And the girl's going, what? I'm taking a shower. But she doesn't know she's been dead for five years. Now, the people that showed up, that was a pretty good show. They, they ended it. But anyhow, if, if somebody shows up, well, I wouldn't want to question them. Where were you? What were you doing? And if they would have said, I don't know. Oh, that, that would have just been the epitome of this is not right. You know, all these dead people showing up. What a sign that was to the people. And Jerusalem wasn't a huge city. And if they were a holy individual, they would have been known by those who were in the city. Talk about a shock. If you went out to Rosecrans, I have several family members out at Rosecrans. If you walk out there and all of a sudden the graves just open up and people get up and say, excuse me, <clears throat> I'm trying to get home. What are you going to say? You're going to be, well, this is not Kansas. You know, you're, you're somewhere else at this particular point. And so these things were all signs for the people that they would know this man was truly the son of God for all of these miracles to take place. Then verse 54 says, When the centurion, those who were with him, who were guarding Jesus, saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, Surely he was the Son of God. Now I have eight minutes. I, I, I'm going to end it here. I'd like you to turn over to Hebrews chapter 9. There, it is significant that this temple... Um, curtain was torn. And it gives us an explanation by, I believe it was Paul who is the author here, in Hebrews chapter 9, verses 1 through 15. It says, Now the first covenant had regulations for worship and also an earthly sanctuary. A tabernacle was set up in its first room where the lampstand, the table, and the consecrated bread, and this was called the holy place. Behind the second curtain, so there's a curtain when you enter the first section, the first room, and it goes on to say, behind the second curtain was a room called the most holy place, which had the golden altar of incense and the gold cover ark of the covenant. And by the way, some depictions put the altar of incense inside the Holy of Holies, some put it outside. And we don't know why the discrepancy has taken place here on this, but it was definitely in there. And that's a study for another day. Uh, Verse 4, it says, which had the golden altar of incense and gold-covered ark of the covenant. The ark contained the gold jar of manna, Aaron's staff that had budded, and the stone tablets of the covenant. Above the ark were the cherubim of the glory, <clears throat> overshadowing the atonement cover. But we cannot discuss these things in detail now. When everything hadn't been arranged like this, the priest entered regularly into the outer courtroom to carry on their ministry. In other words, the showbread, the lighting of the candles, the burning of the incense, they would do that, and that's what they'd rotate. The candles were never to go out, the lampstand. It goes on to say, verse 8, the Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still standing. This is an illustration for the present time indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. So the worshiper could not go into the Holy of Holies. It was only for the priest. 
the high priest at that. It goes on, verse 10, there are only, they were only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings, external regulations applying until the time of the new order. Verse 11, when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not man-made, that is to say, not a part of this creation. We know that in Scripture it tells us there is also a tabernacle, a temple in heaven, which is modeled by the one here on earth. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once and for all by his own blood, having attained eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of heifers sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciousness from acts that lead to death so that they may serve the living God. For this reason, Christ is a mediator of a new covenant that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. So in the Old Testament covenant, once a year, the high priest would go in and sprinkle blood on the mercy seat, which was the lid covering to the Ark of the Covenant. Jesus went to heaven with his own blood and offered that for the sins and and the atonement for us who are here. And because of that, there is no longer a reason for a curtain in the earthly sanctuary. And it was torn which means there is a new way, a new order that God has set up for us to go to God directly to the mercy seat. And we can go in there boldly. The Jews would think that's blasphemous to go in there. Those who follow Christ say, no, I get to go in there. And the Lord says, I get to sit on his throne with him. And to the ears of the Jews, again, that would be blasphemy. That's where we are. We have that mercy seat available to us. We can go to God anytime and say, please forgive me. And he promises to do so. Just like the insurrectionists or the thieves that were on either side of him when he was crucified. Today you'll be with me in paradise. What a fantastic thing. And he's had to suffer all of this in order to make it happen. If we can only grab hold of how delicate this is on how tremendous this is of what he actually did it's transforming our entire lives it has the ability to do so if we ignore his sacrifice it may not have an effect at all on our lives and we'll just say yeah i believe in god but it really doesn't affect your life it doesn't give you a heart for the lost it doesn't do any of that My prayer for you is that you understand fully and comprehend the price that Jesus paid going to the cross so that that curtain could be torn from top to bottom. Again, another sign especially for the high priest, Caiaphas and Annas. May the Lord fill you with his spirit and may you have understanding like you have never had before when it comes to Jesus' sacrifice and our new life in him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for... Your word, how it enlightens us. It it puts together the pieces of the puzzle. It makes sense of all the Old Testament sacrifices and what Jesus went through to sacrifice himself for our sakes and how selfless he was. May we, Lord, through your spirit, the power that he possesses, become selfless like Jesus so that in some way we might influence those around us just as Jesus influenced all of those around him. And may you do this according to your word and according to your glory. May your glory and you, Father, be lifted up. In Jesus' name, amen.